to turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. taking a little bit of time here in some of these chapters to move carefully because these are not just summaries of narrative portions. One of the things I think you probably ought to do or have done, especially parents, when you really want your children to listen, I think I've spoken this way even in relationship to this particular book, You take your hands, you grab their chin, you bring them close, and you say, listen. And they're going, do you ever get that? And they're just pushing it. No, stop. Listen. (laughs) Logan is laughing. I think you did that before we came here, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. He's willing to admit it. (laughs) We do it in our hearts, adults. Listen. And you say very slowly, This is what I want you to do. Moses is calling the second generation to listen. Now, last week, it was listen and do, hear and obey. This week, he wants us to internalize that exhortation for this reason, in order to care for your soul. What this is about is not outward conformity. It is about eternal life. The law for the Christian is not mow your lawn, trim your hedges so your house can look as good as the next house. Internalize God's revelation so that you might follow him all the days of your life. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from you or from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that's the area of Mount Sinai, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing and preaching of it and the hearing of it. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We pray, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Two simple exhortations this evening. One from verse 9, one from 10 through 12, verses 10 through 12. The first, take care and keep your soul. Take care and keep your soul. And then second, gather 
and hear. Gather and hear. Let's look at the first point. Take care and keep your soul. Moses is communicating to the Israelites, discipleship, holiness demands diligence. Johnny Cash saying it, right? I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. He's talking about walking the line. Johnny Cash struggled in the early part of his life to live righteously, and he admitted that later on in life, whether it was a straying eye or a, a desire for the drink. He was a broken individual for many years. And then when he finally got, perhaps, at least in terms of what he used to be, on the straight and narrow, he's saying, I'll walk the line. That is what Moses is calling the Israelites to do. Who sets the line? What is the line? How are we to walk? The psalmist says, a light unto my feet and lamp unto my path. That's the line. The line that is the straight and narrow, the way that we are to walk, he says later, are the Ten Commandments. And it is fact from the Ten Commandments that the entirety of the case law is given. The case law of Israel are the Ten Commandments applied. But you need more than just ten. Because there are circumstances in life that require nuance. What does it mean to apply thou shalt not steal if you end up with something in your pocket that, well, you put there intentionally? Or, I mean, I've even had kids go into stores and they've taken something because they did not understand the concept of ownership. Which, you can't blame them. I mean, we live in a country now where no one understands the concept of ownership and private property, right? Uh, There's all manner of ways in which we're to understand and apply the law. And sometimes there's accidents. Sometimes there's intention. Sometimes there's the heat of the moment. It's case law. And in this regard, holiness requires diligence. Not only are we to learn the law, but we understand that it is difficult to keep it. Now you may say, yeah, it is. That's their fault, which is what Adam did, right? The woman that you gave me, God, she, she gave it to me. Children, you've made this excuse. They made me do it. Or I remember when I was a kid and I was fighting with my sister and I pushed her and she fell back into this crib that my dad built for her dolls and she hurt her back and she starts screaming. And in that moment, I knew I'm dead. I'm going to die. My father is going to kill me. And so as soon as my dad came into the room, I said, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. He looked at me. And I got in worse trouble for that than I did for pushing and hurting my sister. I didn't get out of trouble that night. The world, the flesh, the devil. I was on a theological concept, but I did not understand the covenant. That was an interesting discussion we had. But the fact is this. Holiness requires diligence, not just because there are people out there going, come on. Let's go this way, the woman of folly in Proverbs, or your friends that are saying, it's okay, let's do this. You are led astray when those temptations and provocations do what? Entice your sinful flesh. 
Holiness requires diligence, as I said earlier, because when you hear don't, you think do. And when you hear do, you think don't. Christ even said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He who would lose or he who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Have you ever evangelized someone and the tack that you take is the Christian life is great? I remember being in an environment where we were told this. The first principle of all life is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, when Paul encounters Jesus, Jesus does not say, hey, Paul, I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. He says, Paul, you've caused a lot of problems in my church. Guess what? You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for my sake. You're going to even suffer to the point of death. Now, if you consider that a wonderful plan, then you've got it. But the world does not consider that a wonderful plan. What does the world consider a wonderful plan? Retirement at Cabo, right? Every day on the beach. Every day is beach day. I don't ever have to cook again. Everybody makes me drinks, they make me food, and I just sort of walk around and I enjoy life. The Christian life is a call to lose something, but to gain something else. Now, what did Israel lose? They lost a life of futility and death in Egypt. A squandered life. And what they got in return was a call to obey and follow after God. And many Israelites said what to that? Um... Can we go back to Egypt? Isn't that what every sin is? It is a choice that we make. Egypt over Canaan. It requires diligence because our hearts long for the cucumbers and melons of Egypt. That's what they were asking for. They wanted quick and easy. Enslavement to sin is the instinct of the human heart. It is not the liberty of the gospel. It is, not, it is not the glory of the law. To be faithful requires a sober mind and a disciplined heart. This is what he means. Take care. Take care. Walk carefully. Earlier this afternoon, the same son who admitted to turning his head away when I you know, grabbed him by the... Was we were giving him a a sandwich to give to our daughter. And we said, if you hold it with two hands and you walk carefully, you will deliver the sandwich unspilled. So what did he do? He walked away, grabbed a plate and went. (laughs) Why? Why not? He's always spinning. Was it disobedience or was it just whimsy? I don't know. He wasn't taking care. That's my point. When you're taking care, you hold it carefully. You watch your steps. You know what's ahead of you. 
This is one of the things that we impress upon our children when you learn to drive. You should always know what's a few hundred feet ahead and what's a few hundred feet behind. So you're not surprised when you're getting over in the right-hand lane and there's a car there. You saw it coming. And to take care in this particular way to keep your soul. Because you and I are prone to forget. Now, what are we prone to forget? The things that we have seen. And that we forget and they leave our hearts. One of the things that is easy to forget, let's say in a marriage, are those first flashes of romantic passion. Oh, I remember those days. The days before diapers. Those days! Not a care in the world by comparison. And then the diapers come. So what do you do? You take care. You don't forget. You don't let your heart let go of how it felt before the days of diapers. (laughs) It's the same in the Christian life. It's that, it is that fervor, that warmth, that tenderness that comes by meditating not only upon the beauty and glory of God's revelation, but the beauty and glory of God's revelation to you as a child of mercy. Hone your testimony. I don't mean hone it so that you can tell it and people are impressed by it. Hone it as a means of reminding yourself that you were unworthy, but God showed mercy. It's what we looked at this morning, Psalm 63. It is the diligent attending to the reality of God's grace and mercy over and over and over again. It is... Self-care. That's a buzzword right now, isn't it? Self-care, it's silly. When you think about what most people mean by it. It is the pursuit of personal piety. It is to set before you at all times, not just what God hath said, but what he has done. And not just to you, but to the entire body of Christ. His entire body. Delight in the mercy that God has shown to others. Delight in the mercy that God showed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to Samuel, to Saul. Who was Saul? Saul was a worse sinner than you. That's what he says. And he's not exaggerating. How many Christians have you killed? Maybe with your heart and maybe with your mouth. How many have you helped put to death? And yet even Saul came to an extraordinary awareness of God's mercy. And that is what Saul is doing in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He is reminding a little biographical snippet of what he has seen and what he has heard. The reason why your heart diminishes in its warmth to God and you say, I just don't feel it, it is because you have not taken care of your heart. You have not attended to God's revelation. 
And not just your own heart, but what? Verse 9, make them known to your children and your children's children. There are certain elementary things that you communicate to elementary children that are fundamentally transforming, not just in the truth of them, but in the reconveyance of them, in the saying of these things time and time again. I think I've told this story. I have a really bad habit of telling the same stories over and over. And I hate to say it, but until I get older, these are the stories I have. And so if I've told this story again, just bear with me. Years ago, I was sitting in a, a little restaurant in southwest China talking to someone about the Bible and salvation and the gospel. And we, were, we sat there eating beef stew in these clay pots. Yes, I can not only remember what it tasted like, I can remember the smells and the sights of it all. And we're sitting there for three hours, and we go from Genesis to Revelation, and I just lay out the story of Scripture. And I remember walking home from that conversation thinking, it's true. It's all true. Every bit of it. And it's not just true. It has to be true. And I believe it, and I am blessed, not because I believe, but because God has revealed it to me. I believe these things. And I went home on cloud nine. I, I don't, it, it didn't really matter. It did matter, but it didn't really matter at that time what he believed. It did matter. But what was most glorious to me was, this is everything. And the more you talk to people about it, the more real it becomes. Not because you speak it into the world somehow, postmodernly, you sort of speak it and it becomes true. It is because the Holy Spirit uses the mechanism of repetition, the mechanism of meditation, the mechanism of slow exposure, rep repetitious exposure to truth to grow you. When you grow and you plant a garden, how many times do you water it? Once and then you leave it alone? Every day. You go out there and you water. You feed yourself. You feed your animals. Why? To grow. We present these things not only to ourselves, but verse 9, we make them known to our children and to our grandchildren in perpetuity. To your children's children. It is a covenantal dialogue. It is a covenantal observation. Look and see. Hear and believe. Listen and do. How God has delivered us. We used to be in Egypt. But we're not in Egypt anymore. And look how far we've come. Not just geographically. Like we're a long way from Egypt. Right in Gastonia? Spiritually, look at how far we've come. Look at what God has done with the gospel. It started there at the Mediterranean, and then it moved to Italy, and then it moved to Europe, and then Northern Europe, and then from England to Scotland. And if you're a Presbyterian, from Scotland to America. Or maybe you're from Holland in the Dutch Reformed tradition. 
How many generations? What did it take to bring you to this place? You know, people are obsessed right now with this ancestry and this DNA stuff. And you look at it and you marvel at all of the things that happened to make you, you. We should marvel at the grace of God and his sovereign orchestration to bring us to the place as he did with Israel. Look what I have done to bring you to this place. My point is the fear of the Lord is learned covenantally. It is passed on. And oftentimes, parents, what we're looking for in our children is this light switch. One day they don't have it, the next day they do. Because we want to be able to measure and quantify it for our own sort of assurance. But oftentimes, in the life of a covenant child, it's just, it's drilling, it's catechizing, it's observing, it's repetition. Do it this way. And there seems to be sort of an imperceptible growth in grace like the dawning of the sun. Covenantal obedience is learned over time. And we often think of covenantal faithfulness as a a sort of, in a man-centered sort of way. The greatest thing that you can do for yourself and for your children, this is for parents and for people who will one day have children, or for people who are just simply part of the covenant body and you are a mature, older person in the faith and people are looking to you, for example. What do you do? You don't forget what you've seen. Don't forget it. And do as God has commanded. Take care. Watch how you walk. Because there are people who are coming behind you and they're stepping where you stepped because they want to become like you. Paul says what? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It is an imitational, incarnational covenant obedience. Second, gather and hear. Gather and hear. In order to do this, God provides for us regularly Covenant renewal ceremony. It began at Sinai when Moses went up on the mountain and everybody was down at the foot of the mountain. The fence had been erected so they would not go on the mountain and touch it and die. And they were there and they saw all this stuff happening and they were afraid. And at that time, God did not appear to them in any form at all. Just a sort of meteorological phenomenon. And I will get to that in a moment Because it is our desire and our sinful corruption to make an image of God and to worship that image instead of the means by which God has actually revealed himself. You see the mountain and the covenant. And it is there at the mountain that God entered into a covenant. How on the day, verse 10, at Horeb, you stood before the Lord, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And so then they came near, and then verse 13, he declared to you his covenant. He wed himself to Israel as a nation on that day. 
Every day we come to God's house and we gather in his presence and he ministers to us from his mouth words of life. We are being renewed in the covenant. We call worship a covenant renewal ceremony. Every Sunday you get to renew your vows. And so have you noticed that every single worship service, it is a dialogue. And we say to the Lord, Lord, we love you. The Lord says, I love you. And there are promises and there are stipulations. The word is being applied. And what God is doing when we are in his presence is he is showing, he is telling, and we are to take it and watch over our souls as a result of it. We still gather at God's mountain for worship. As those who have been consecrated out of Egypt through baptism, and we commune with him, but not like Israel did in Exodus 19 and following, because there's this incredible little narrative section that we often miss, that after the covenant was established, a group of elders went up about halfway up the mountain And they ate with God. And he was present with them. It was an even greater glimpse of what God would do with Christ and his disciples. And now Christ with us right here at this table. And the reason that we come to God is he is unlike any of the other gods of earth. He is a holy God. A God who is a consuming fire who is holy, his power is unimpeachable. It cannot be thwarted. No one can take it from him. And the glory and the might and the holiness and all of those things was conveyed to Israel and they looked at him and went, whoa. They feared him. Now, the thing is, God did not leave them without revelation as to what he was like, nor without the ability to have fellowship with him. In fact, when God wanted to reveal to Old Testament Israel what he was like and how they were to fellowship with him, he did so through Moses, through the priests, in the tabernacle, with the altar. And so when we look for what Christ will be like, the Messiah, we look there. Not just the intention for God to meet with his people. But we need to understand this. God and men are both limited by their ontology, their being. What is true about who they are. God is holy, we are not. He cannot even gaze upon our sinfulness and not meet it with wrath and indignation. So what is God to do with us? must provide a means by which we can actually fellowship with him face to face. The preview of that is in the Old Testament, but it is fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the narrative that we are to run over and over in our heads. How did we come to the place where we meet God? How did that meeting get arranged? God made it happen. When I tell the story about how I met my wife, I talk about the people who introduced me to her. 
It's part of the narrative. It's part of that elaborate web. All those things that were happening while I was a doofus just running around being stupid. God was cooking something up. Well, actually, before the foundations of the world were laid, he instantly cooked something up. It's a weird conversation, right? It's a tough thing. But God did all that. While I'm just sort of doing my thing, there was a plan. And that plan, when it is revealed, I go, whoa, that's incredible. This should be your response to the gospel every time you hear it. Because it should not have happened to you, but it did. And God did not have to do it, but he did. God did not have to deliver Israel from Egypt, but he said he would. God was merciful. God did not have to say, all right, some of you are going to die in the wilderness, but I'm going to save some of you. God could have condemned Adam and Eve to eternal darkness, but he didn't. His holiness, his incorruptibility, his longing to draw his people to himself These components of God's character are essential to our grasping the extraordinary nature of grace. C.S. Lewis touched on this in the Chronicles of Narnia when the children were visiting and they were running from the unrighteous rule of the white witch. And winter had already come and they were there with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, if you're not familiar with Narnia, this is going to sound like gibberish. If you've not read it, you need to read it. And they hear rumors of this lion called Aslan, who is the righteous ruler of the realm. And all the stories they've heard, that he is a mighty, giant creature. Naturally, one of the children asks, is he safe? Right? How many kids, how many of you are afraid of an animal, like a dog, if you're not used to him? You see that animal, you go, Mm-mm. is he safe? And Mr. Beaver goes, oh, no, 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 no. He isn't safe, but he is good. To me, this principle, this reality of a good but mighty God is the only divine concept that gives me hope in an age where we have people who think they are mighty, but boy, are they not good. Who will stand in the face of the wicked? Who will protect us? Who will guard us? Who is worthy of our worship? It is God. And so what Deuteronomy is presenting to us is an answer to this question. What is the faith that God has laid down for us? What is it like to walk with him? Simply put, it is life according to his word. Deuteronomy says to us, if you wish to walk in faithfulness, you must be consumed, you must be wholly given over to, this is what God has said whether it is precept, whether it is stipulation or command, it is all good because it comes from him. 
And it is the means by which our lives will be saved for eternity, from temporary futility. And it is there, verse 13. He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And what greater command to receive Christ than to not look elsewhere for salvation? When we look at the cross of Christ, that first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, brings us to our knees, not only because of awareness of our own sinfulness, but because the one who suffered on the cross is God for us. It brings us to a humble place of reliance upon him. Moses is, in essence, massaging the hearts of the Israelites in order to receive God's word. May we be softened by it as well. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God.